Howdy, everybody. Uh, my name is Jason Kander, and my writer is that I'm always introduced by Lyle Lovett. Um, <laughs> that's just my deal. It's a little easier here. It gets kind of hard when I go to like New York and I do events. Um, people listening to this later will be like, what was he talking about? <laughs> there was an intro video from Lyle Lovett. Um, so this is the Majority 54 podcast. Uh, it is the podcast for the 54% of Americans who regularly vote progressive in elections, and it's specifically for them to be able to help convince uh, their conservative friends and family members to join our majority. I'm Jason Kander. This is Ravi Gupta. All right. Well, thank you all for being here today. Just a couple of housekeeping notes. One is we're going to talk for 45 minutes, and then we'll have about 15 minutes of Q&A. And uh, if you haven't yet, please silence your phones. You can uh, tweet about this or X about this or Instagram about this or threads about yeah, this. Right. Uh, I think hashtag TribFest23. Uh, ben, who I'll introduce in a second, will also be available after this down in the bookstore uh, signing copies of his book, which is incredible, as we'll get to. Uh, but this is Ben McKenzie, who I think who doesn't need much of an introduction. He is a accomplished actor and now author of uh, Easy Money, which is a book about crypto. It is a skeptical take, to say the least, of, of crypto. And uh, that's what we're here to talk about today, uh, crypto and the sort of the, the wider crypto phenomenon. So Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm a fan. Uh, all right, uh, let's start with um, this question. Uh, how does an actor, and I want to say this in a way that does not in any way diminish you. Oh, please, <laughs> feel free. It's okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> how does an actor end up writing what has become a very important and popular book about a thing that most of us don't understand? Right, well, a lot of luck is probably the short answer of that, but um, how I fell down the rabbit hole is boredom. It was covid um, the entertainment industry was on ice, obviously. There's no way to practice my, my given profession, which is pretending to be other people, um, if I had to be six feet apart from everyone at all times. So I was bored, I was lonely, I was, like so many of us, depressed, and um, I saw the markets going berserk. I have a degree in economics, but it's 20 years old, I hadn't really used it, I never really paid attention to the financial markets before, to be honest with you. The dismal science is not something that people want to hear about around the craft service table and like la la Hollywood, you know, it's just not uh, a conversation. Uh, I've, I, tr I remember trying a few times and just being let with these, these blank stares. So um, I dusted off the econ degree, looked at the markets, I was like, what is going on? Because this was meme stocks and NFTs and crypto. And I thought, oh, we're in a bubble. We're in a massive bubble. Sort of, it started, uh, the, the book, Easy money, cryptocurrency, casino capitalism, and the golden age of fraud is about crypto, but it's also about how crypto started, which was the subprime crisis or the reaction to the subprime crisis. And so this easy money started there, but had gone nuts during the pandemic, which now we see leads to inflation and stuff. So anyway, I had started to develop this, this, maybe it's obvious in retrospect, theory that we were in a massive bubble. I still wasn't really paying attention to crypto, but a friend of mine came to me, Dave, who I've been friends with since college, and said, you gotta buy Bitcoin. And um, many people in this room probably have someone who's encouraged them to buy cryptocurrency. They have a Dave. Yes, everybody's got <laughs> a Dave. Dave. Poor Dave, by the way. Uh, yeah, I love him. He's, uh, yeah. So, so he had given me terrible financial advice when I was in my 20s. Um, he'd encouraged me to invest in this stock a company that had supposedly produced synthetic blood. This was not Theranos. This was many years before Theranos. But. I mean, 
Would have been big. Would have been big. <laughs> if it was true. Big if true. Exactly, as they say. After um, this, I want to talk to you about my cold fusion. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, unfortunately, it was not true, and I lost most of my money, as did he. He was not scamming me. So when Dave came back to me some 20 years later and said, you got to buy Bitcoin, I thought, I'm not going to, but tell me more. Um, and I just went down a rabbit hole. And, and so, yeah, I, I, basically after a few months of research, um, I was very skeptical because none of the words in crypto mean what they mean in regular English language. We'll get into this, but currencies are not currencies, stable coins are not stable, all these things. It felt like um, potentially the biggest Ponzi scheme in history, if I was right, at a minimum, one of the bigger bubbles in history, uh, because there's no real there there. And at worst, if it's built on a foundation of fraud, the biggest Ponzi. I felt like I needed to write about it, so I reached out to a journalist, Jacob Silverman, we started reporting on it. We traveled all over the world, interviewed people like Sam Bankman-Fried, and, uh, and the book came out a couple months ago. Um, so it started with boredom, and then, uh, and then I just couldn't get out of my head. Before Ravi asks like really smart questions, um, I, I'm going to be a little bit of an avatar for the audience. So to, for everybody here, um, I will orient you to the fact that Ravi knows about this subject. Ravi, uh, this is like the kind of thing Ravi is interested in. I don't know about this subject. Um, and so in, in furtherance of my being an avatar for the audience, let me start with the very hard-hitting question of, what is crypto? Great, great question. <laughs> in, a, in a way that someone like me, for instance, would understand. And can I also say, I have asked this question of people, and they have explained it to me in the past, and I have gone 15 to 20 minutes at a time thinking, I now understand crypto. But then it just leaves me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they just keep talking. <laughs> just keep kind of nodding and pretending as it's though you... It's just like too deep and uh -huh. I'm past the level nope. where I can swim. And no, no, no. You are, it is not too deep. Oh, that's the secret, right? That's the secret, okay. is go with your gut. Does it seem like a scam? It is. Uh, <laughs> crypto is gambling in an unregistered, unlicensed casino. Um, cryptocurrencies are... Uh, basically investments in computer code that can be stored on ledgers called blockchains. Blockchain is just a ledger. It's a way of storing information, a distributed ledger. So it has no central uh, uh, home. It is run through all of these computers. Um, there's a big Bitcoin mine just uh, just east of here that's in the book. Um, and a Bitcoin mine is just a bunch of computers. Yes. And servers. Okay. Performing simple mathematical In this case, there's a repurposed Alcoa factory or something yeah, like that? Al Alcoa yeah, Alcoa aluminum smelting plant. Um, and so cryptocurrencies are these sort of speculative investments in bits of computer code. Um, they were sold as a peer-to-peer -peer currency. That was the original intention of Satoshi Nakamoto, who is not a real person, or there are real Satoshis, but whoever was behind this wait, wait, wait. wrote under a pseudonym. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I just want, we should meditate on that. Yes, we should second. meditate on that. For <laughs> it's worth, it's worth yeah. uh, uh, just considering that we don't even know where this started. Right. We don't know what the intentions were. Uh, it It'd was be like hit. people being like, there's no Thomas Edison. Right. Like, <laughs> right. And okay. which is, it's not just true of Bitcoin, right? You have this whole chapter about Tether, which hopefully we'll have some time to talk about, where there seem to be murky origins to a lot of the different cryptocurrencies and the, some of the companies that serve. Hang on, you're getting too smart. Sorry, 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 sorry. So, 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 sorry. What is crypto? Yeah. So, exactly. So, so these, these uh, ledgers, blockchains, store transaction information, and people are trading these cryptocurrencies back and forth. So um, 
you know, I think the appeal was uh, the the blockchain is synonymous. There's a there's a, a sort of a privacy respecting element to this. The quote unquote money that these currencies aspire to be are free of state control, right? They're not issued by a government, so that's sort of appealing for a certain sort of libertarian uh, libertarian ethos. And um, and the story was that this money was going to be freed from the dead hand of state and the you know all of the easy money printing and mm-hmm. all of it basically the story of crypto I, I track how it evolved but it became uh, somewhat of a, a reaction to all the things you hate about the regulated financial system which everyone knows to be deeply flawed and was made obvious at the subprime crisis it became a way of sort of saying if you hated all that stuff you could buy crypto right didn't take off for a little while. Eventually, the, the Silk Road was the first way it took off. That was a dark web drug marketplace. You could buy drugs and weapons and uh, order assassinations and things like that. Fun, fun times. Um, and you could use Bitcoin uh, because of its pseudonymity to, to, to make payments there. That was shut down by the feds. Then all these other cryptos started being made off of Ethereum in the sort of mid-2010s. Um, again, still very, very small. But during COVID, it just blew up as this company Tether that basically makes the poker chips in the casino, these things that you trade um, uh, when you were investing in cryptocurrency, started printing billions and billions of dollars, and the entire thing just blew up. This huge, huge bubble formed as regular people were sitting at home with a lot of time on their hands, with stimulus payments, with, um, with sports gambling shut down for a while. There's a lot of overlap between crypto and gambling in many different ways that go into the book. And so it just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it manifested in the Super Bowl of 2022, where you know all of the ads were, were crypt- almost all the ads were crypto. It was like Larry like, David, Larry Matt David. Damon. Yeah, there was like some big... Tom Brady. That's when I put all my money in crypto. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the problem, <laughs> is that the majority of the people who have ever bought crypto bought at the height. I mean, you, you can see that. That's actually from the industry's own studies. Um, and that's totally understandable from sort of just an armchair economist. Like, of course, people go in right at the height because that's when the hype is the, the highest. But unfortunately, what that means is obviously most people who have ever bought crypto or underwater have lost money. Uh, And that doesn't even include all the people that can't get their money out of all these companies that have failed, like FTX. So when you talk to sort of crypto bulls, they name a couple of use cases. So one would be that it's a currency. Although I'm staying on South Congress, and I I said, if if Austin, if there's anywhere you could buy something in crypto, it's got to be Austin on South Congress. For sure, yeah. Not a single place. So people were laughing at me when I'm like, oh, can I... Can I exchange this? Can I buy this coffee with cryptocurrency? Did you try? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So, uh, so you can't you can't buy anything with crypto. At least you tell me. No. no. Two is remittances, and you had an interesting story about going down to El Salvador and investigating remittances. So that's wait, wait, wait. to define uh, the word. Remittances. So remittances, like, so basically, what people will say, and I thought this was actually the strongest case for crypto a couple of years ago, which is that it's really hard for people who uh, transact, and you know this from your work in Afghanistan, it's hard to send money into certain countries. So Western Union, I mean, I forget what the fee is. It's insane how yeah, much money like they money take. Gram and, and so with yeah. crypto, theoretically, you could send money across borders oh, much more easily. Oh, that's what means. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. And, and El Salvador has a really interesting backstory to this, which I'd love you to tell. So that's the second use case. And then the third is what? Like, I don't even know. Like, what are we Speculation? using this for? Yeah. I mean... The idea was, well, there was also the argument, there is this argument as well, uh, which I think is worth exploring. So the other cryptocurrencies have really no limit as to how much 
currency can be created, which is kind of funny if they're in a reaction to the inflation of, yeah. right. of uh, you think right. the U.S. government's bad, you can create as much computer code as you want. But for Bitcoin specifically, the supply is limited per the code. There's only 21 million Bitcoin that can ever be mined, you know, supposedly. Although, of course, the code could be changed. But that's another story. Anyway, the advocates say that this limited supply, 21 million Bitcoin, means that crypto is scarce. Not true, but they think that that makes it digital gold. They think it makes it valuable in and of itself. Um, it's a little hard to explain why that's wrong, but uh, they're, they're conflating limited supply with scarcity. Uh, supply is just how much is available to be bought or sold economically. Scarcity is when demand exceeds supply at the price of zero. There's more demand for something than there is supply. That's what makes something scarce. So I use the example in the book. Um, something can be limited in supply and, and scarce because there's demand for it, or not if there isn't. Imagine, I live in Brooklyn, imagine I went to each and every dog owner in the Fairborough of Brooklyn and I bought the rights to their dog's shit. Imagine that I bought all the dog shit in Brooklyn. Not the dogs, mind you, but just the right to the dog's feces. Now, there's a limited supply of how many dogs are in Brooklyn. This is genius. We're going right. to be rich. This is going to be great, right? There's a limited <laughs> supply of dogs. They can only defecate so much. But is my empire of dog poo scarce? Is it valuable? No, because there's no demand for it. Now, if there were this company, Tether, that was printing crypto out of thin air and was the poker chips in the casino and people realized at some point that this demand was inflated and fake, what would happen? People would realize that this thing they had been sold was digital gold is instead dog shit. This is the underpants episode of South Park with the yes. gnomes that steal the underpants. Yes, yes. South Park yeah. has done the best crypto criticism. Yeah. Directly, and they also did a Matt Damon episode that was amazing about when he was huh. selling crypto. Anyway, wow. so, so crypto is really predicated on a, on a, on a, on a misunderstanding of what money is. Um, they, one obvious question would be, well, if this money isn't coming from the government, because you hate the government, okay, we all want to pick the government, where's it coming from? They don't like to admit this, but of course the reality is it's coming from corporations. Like people are behind businesses, create these cryptocurrencies. The Bitcoin miners are billion dollar publicly listed uh, companies. Private money? I mean, it should be obvious the, the pitfalls there. Well, make this real. We, you mentioned Tether. Yeah. I didn't know a lot about Tether until I read your book. It's the biggest currency, I guess, by volume out there. I didn't know that. And the cast of characters... You can't make this up. Just paint this for us. You talk about it's it's not just corporations. Right. These are very shady actors. Yes, yes. <laughs> or if they to the extent we can even verify who's creating this stuff. Right. So to talk a little bit about Tether, because I think this is a story that a lot of people don't know. Sure. So Tether is a stable coin. It's the biggest stable coin out there. What is a stable coin? A stable coin is something where in the crypto casinos, in the on the exchanges where all the crypto is traded, uh, a tether is treated as a dollar. Right, So if you want to trade crypto, you don't want to ha have to go in and out of different cryptos and back into real money because you're going to have to go through a bank account. It's going to uh, be a taxable event. You're going to have to pay taxes. And there's a lot of money sloshing through the cri crypto ecosystem that is coming from dubious sources. They want to avoid banks at all costs. So they're treated like the poker chips in the casino. More tethers are traded on any given day in crypto than either Bitcoin or Ethereum combined both of the two biggest cryptos combined. So it is really, a crypto market is really a market for tethers. It's actually not a market for Bitcoin or Ethereum, commonly misunderstood. So what is this company, Tether? Well, 
Um, one of its founders is a guy named Brock Pierce, who was a former child actor, star of Mighty Ducks. Um, huh. Yeah, he uh, he was briefly in business with Steve Bannon, uh, selling. Mean, so far, uh, yeah, I'm so impressed. far so good. Uh, let's see, fun facts. Uh, the CFO is a former uh, plastic surgeon turned uh, a software pirateer. He had to settle with Microsoft for pirating. I'd love to know how those two dudes met. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the CEO hasn't been seen in public in years. Uh, this company that has 80 plus billion dollars, supposedly, these are supposedly backed one to one. So we're supposedly 86 billion tethers are backed with 86 billion real dollars. They've never been audited. There's no chance that there's $86 billion. I mean, there's always a chance, yeah, right? Yeah. I feel like Jim Carrey hey, where does, saying Inspector, there's a chance. You know, where does I, Inspector Gadget come in from this? Oh, like yes, and then Inspector Gadget, yes. And so their banker is Jean Chalopin, who uh, is the co-creator of the Inspector Gadget cartoon series. Uh, so, And the entire company has, I don't know, a few dozen employees, maybe, at most. $83 billion company. A few dozen employees, some of which appear to be fakes. It's run out of, um, well, it's hard to say exactly, but the bank, interestingly enough, uh, Chalopin's bank is in the Bahamas, which is where FTX was. Guess who's the biggest issuer of tethers or buyer of tetherers, first or second, is Alameda Research, which was Sam Bankman-Fried's other company. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in October when Sam goes on trial. But... Um, the crypto market is very, very small. Yeah, of course, it's the opposite of what they say. It's decentralized, all that. No, no, no. It's very, very small. Well, you call this a, a Ponzi scheme. So, and, and in your book, you, you kind of lay out in detail what you mean by that. Uh, for our audience's sake, because I think when people hear Ponzi scheme, that's like a very particular thing. You know, it's like, it's, a, it's essentially explicitly a fraud. Mm -hmm. So when you say Ponzi scheme, what do you mean here? Sure. So a Ponzi scheme... There's a great book, Lying for Money, by Dan Davies, that actually goes into how frauds work. Um, one of the common misperceptions of Ponzi schemes is that um, the thing that really distinguishes them is just that they need new people to come in to replace the original investor so that the scheme can get going. That's true, but that's not really... The distinguishing... That could be true of any re uh, uh, revolving credit. You could you could call Social Security a Ponzi scheme. People call it all the time. It's not really, I don't believe that's true, but, but, but if you were to define it that broadly, Social Security could be defined that way uh, or treated as a Ponzi scheme. What really, uh, the tell for Ponzi schemes is controlling the redemption process, meaning you're, a Ponzi scheme, you're lying. You're saying, give me your real money. I'm going to give you X return. You're going to make all this money. And you keep lying to people and saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, now you've got 10%, 20%, 30% return. Um, as long as people don't ask for their real money back too much, the scheme can go on for forever. A good example of this is Madoff. Madoff's genius was creating this uh, you know, small exclusive club. You had to be invited to invest. It was a privilege. And as long as you stayed in, you could get the returns that he magically produced. You could leave. But if you left, you were not invited back. And so it created this stigma against redeeming. And he ran the scheme for decades. The only reason he went down was the GFC. When the market started crashing, people said, hey, you know what? I want to take a little money off the table. I know you're a genius, but you know, let's ask for the money back. And the money wasn't there. So the redemption process with Tether. Tether states explicitly 
on its website, you cannot redeem Tether from them if for less than $100,000. And how you actually redeem Tethers from the company is unknown. Apparently, you have to call up one of these guys and come up with some sort of a deal. So that is the biggest red flag you can possibly imagine for a potential Ponzi scheme. As long as people don't ask for their real money back, the numbers on the screen can say whatever the numbers on the screen want to say. Before you get to your next really smart question, when you started going around and asking about this stuff, like, how does kind of pre, because I think you think of the context now, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is like, oh yeah, it's like, now it's like kind of widely accepted like to be skeptical of crypto, right, but you but started this book that. when it was two years ago. Yeah, it was crazy to call it out. It was three almost. trillion dollars. Yeah. It was right. the height. It was Jacob and I wrote our first article in October of 2021. The crypto market peaked in November of 2021. Yeah. So we were throwing out there, going, "It's a scam! <laughs> it's a scam! Right. It's a scam!" And there was absolutely we. It's treated with the the appropriate sort of uh, uh, humor in the book. Nobody was listening. Right. I mean, they were listening, but more as the oddity of like. Why is Ryan Atwood from the OC telling me <laughs> what is going on? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, maybe he's on to the biggest Ponzi scheme in history, sure. But also, maybe he's lighting his career on fire by like going after right. this thing that's clearly the future of money. Yeah. Break out the popcorn. Like, let's let's just watch. Let's see, watch this guy like destroy his entire life. And this it, is so exciting. And is that coming from like people in the economic, like in the finance world, or is that coming from like the Hollywood, or just everybody? It's, it's like, coming. No, it's coming from synonymous, you know, bit, uh, Twitter okay. trolls and people stuff. People who have an interest in saying absolutely. Yeah, okay. I mean, one of the misperceptions of crypto is that it is even a legitimate asset class. It's obviously trying to legitimize itself as much as possible. But you'll notice that when they quote people who are pro crypto, they happen to work inside of the crypto industry. Right. <laughs> economists look at crypto with like, and there are seven Nobel Prize winning economists who have said crypto's a bubble. Seven. Yeah. I am not a Nobel Prize winning economist. I mean, not yet. But I, wa <laughs> yeah, but I was on TV. So therefore, yeah. people, you know, listen to me a little bit. And economists, God bless them, are not always the best communicators sometimes because yeah. of this language thing. Because, right. you know, crypto has its own language that's adjacent or that's not English. Economics has its language that's adjacent to English, but not really. How English. weird do things get when you see Matt Damon in Brooklyn Heights? I literally have walked by him once and yeah. I just put my head yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, getting back to the use cases of this. Yeah, sorry, uh, sorry, we got way No, no, no I actually do think that the Hollywood angle of this is really fascinating, which yeah. hopefully we'll have some time for, but... Just briefly, the, the other sort of serious use case that we mentioned is the remittances yeah. piece. You went down to El Salvador. Why? And what did you learn down there? Right. So, yeah. So, the, the, the one of the big selling points here is that, um, again, cryptos was pitched as a response to all the failures of our regulated financial system. So, sending mo money overseas can be difficult. Not quite as difficult as many crypto folks want you to believe. But there are fees in, involved, obviously, whether you're using MoneyGram or Western Union or whatever. El Salvador is the only country in the world to try cryptocurrency as real money. Um, El Salvador, a quarter of El Salvador's economy is remittances. The two to three million people of Salvadoran descent living here, mainly sending money home, really is arguably the foundation of that economy. Very small country, seven million people, two to three million of them live here. Um, so if crypto were to work for remittances, it ought to work there. And the pitch from Bukele, this young, brash, sort of crypto bro president, was this can be a game changer for this small country. We'll create a government system on top of Bitcoin, Chivo, which means cool, 
because you know, gotta be cool. Um, wow. Yeah, and that's so it's so nakedly manipulative. Uh, anyway, there's a good ending to the story. Don't worry. Well, you know, they, good. They but... could have easily just called it handsome. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. <laughs> um, so Bukele said, "This is going to bring in tourists, meaning people that have a bunch of Bitcoin that want somewhere where they can spend their Bitcoin and not pay taxes on it." Um, so they're the Switzerland of. Uh, of, uh, of Bitcoin bros. Um, it has good surfing. Uh, one of the things that, that El Salvador has is amazing waves. So you can see the appeal there. That was the pitch and remittances. So what happened? All of a sudden, summer of 2021, he said, we're gonna adopt Bitcoin as legal tender in like three months. Um, the government's program was developed in secret, a lot of shady stuff there. It was dropped in September, September 7th, I wanna say. As the day it dropped, the price of Bitcoin collapsed. There were riots in the streets, uh, and the public, the average Salvadoran makes about $400 a month, so they don't have a lot of money to mess around. And like, the government gave every Salvadoran 30 bucks worth of crypto, which, just think about that for a second, like free giveaway of this supposedly scarce yeah. you know, cryptocurrency. Anyway, there's so many contradictions. The good news is that the public has ignored it. Nobody uses the system. Less than 1% of remittances use the Chivo wallet system because these people don't have money to gamble with. Um, the system doesn't work very well. There's a lot of fraud. Um, they were issuing money based on um, people's national identity numbers, which sort of like their social security numbers. Um, but those lists were stolen, so people lost the 30 bucks they got. Some Somebody said he put his dog up and like got a you had to issue a picture and he issued, he got his dog and he still got 30 bucks. Anyway, it, it's the issues in El Salvador are the issues that plague crypto more broadly. The technology is not actually very good, the systems don't work, and there's a lot of fraud. So the good news is that it was a, an abysmal failure there. Yeah. The bad news is that Bukele is an authoritarian and has built the largest prison in the world, and El Salvador now has the highest incarceration rate in the world, which is not necessarily directed to Bitcoin, but is interesting yeah. in the context of this supposedly emancipatory currency that is now being used. The one country where they're using it is one of the most authoritarian states in the world. When you talk to people who are bullish on crypto, they'll say, well, everything you said could be true, but that's true of any technology that's ever existed. That, you know, At some point, the technology wasn't right, and then it got right. Or at some point, there was fraud, and then there wasn't fraud. You know, People could say that of securities before the 1930s, right? What makes crypto different? The technology is not new. The technology blockchain has been around since 1991. Uh, Stuart Haber and Scott Stornetta working at Bell Labs. Um, you know, a distributed ledger is just a different way of storing information. Um, the only application that blockchain has had thus far, the use cases, are for trading these cryptocurrencies, which is gambling, economically speaking. I think it's worth explaining why that is. You may have noticed something about cryptocurrencies. They don't do anything. They're not attached to any real-world asset. Even the most sort of obscure, convoluted, mainstream financial product, think like collateralized debt obligations during the subprime crisis. At some point, if you squint it hard enough, there's a, there's a house involved. <laughs> there's a mortgage involved, right? I'm not justifying the subprime crisis. But with crypto, they're free of even that. There's just nothing there. It's just lines of computer code. So. When you're investing in them, what are you investing in? A story, really. Um, that makes it, 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 
it means that capital is not being put to any productive use. The actual value of crypto cannot grow because it doesn't really, it's not really connected to anything that provides value. So at best, you're talking about a zero-sum game. The three of us could sit around a table in Vegas playing poker. You might win a hand, you might win a hand, I might win. If I win, it's coming from your pockets. If you win, it's coming from mine. We're not putting capital to productive use, and while we sit around the table in Vegas, the house takes the rake. So could you win in Vegas? Sure. But if you sit at the table long enough, you're losing. Of course you're losing. How else do they keep the lights on in the casino? Well, crypto is like Vegas, except it's unregulated <laughs> at best. So you're, 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 you're gambling in an offshore you know, illegal casino. It's a recipe for disaster. So, sorry, I'm getting a little bit further afield from your question, but the, the, the response to this is early days or whatever is bullshit. That's the response. The response is the internet. They always want to use the internet as an example. The internet uh, was a revolutionary technology, is a revolutionary technology, but it was pretty clear very early on that something was going to come of this, right? People were able to interact all yeah. over the world instantaneously, enormous, like a paradigm shift in, in so many ways. But, and there was, yeah, there was some fraud, but there were obvious use cases there. Crypto, there really aren't any use cases that I can point to that are legitimate. All of the stories have turned out to not be true. What about the smart contracts piece? It's hard to tell, because I think most average people don't in, like interact in that way. Sure. Like, what was the promise of these like so-called smart contracts, and is anybody really doing that well right now? Sure. Because if, so, if I, just like on, from a lay perspective, if I were to bet on anything working mm. for crypto, it would be in the sort of the contracting space as so, opposed to like the currency space of any sure. sense. So a smart contract for is a an automated uh, computer program. It's just something if X then Y will 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 sort of create uh, uh, a system to you know automatically execute certain functions. And so it was pitched. The smart contracts were pitched as a way of again removing intermediaries. You could replace say. Uh, the, the 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 sort of the the intermediary in a re real estate transaction or something. You know, I'm gonna send you this crypto. And it's automatically going to. I don't need a broker anymore. Um, <laughs> there's a number of issues. Uh, like everything in crypto, the the words don't mean what they should mean. It will surprise hopefully no one at this point that smart contracts are neither smart nor contracts in the legal sense. Um, one of the problems with crypto and with blockchain more, more, more broadly is that what blockchain is a, uh, is a ledger composed of blocks of data that can be added to but never subtracted from, meaning they only go in one direction. They're, 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 they're irreversible. Crypto bros will tell you this is a, this is, this is a feature, um, but actually it's a bug um, because you actually need reversibility in money in our financial system because we're all fallible and we all make mistakes. It's why you can reverse charges on your credit card. It's why you know we have human beings who you can, at some point, if you can get through the call centers, can help you with a mistake that's made. Crypto does not have any of that on, per, on by design. That's what a blockchain, so you can't reverse anything. So one obvious problem with the smart contracts is it just executes automatically and there's no way, hey, I, you, know, the, you hear about this all the time in crypto, these fat finger problems. I, oops, I hit the wrong button, and I sent millions of dollars of fake currency to someone, and I, there's no way to get it back. Um, it's a misunderstanding, really, of what money is. 
money is trust. It's this social construct. It's very fragile, and it relies on, on social consensus. That is, it's a delicate thing. You can't replace it with computer code because it makes it so fragile. Um, I testified in front of the Senate in December of last year, and, and alongside me was a Professor Hillary Allen of American University, who had written a paper just earlier that year, before crypto fell apart, comparing crypto to the subprime crisis. And one of the things she pointed out is one of the factors that led to the subprime crisis was rigidity, meaning the, the inability to unwind all of these levered bets that had been placed in subprime. Well, the rigidity in crypto is even more rigidity because of these smart contracts. When Things go sideways. There's nothing you can do. The, uh, the programs execute automatically, and things fall apart very quickly. Um, and sure enough, only three or four months after she wrote that paper, the first crash began when this thing called Terra Luna, which was an algorithmic stablecoin Ponzi scheme, fell apart and nearly brought down the entire crypto market. So the smart contract thing is really an illusion, and it's, and it's interesting to kind of think about why it's attractive to certain kinds of people, young men. Yeah, I was going to ask, because this is a big part of our podcast, is like the politics of everything, and it seems like, you know, you talk about crypto rose, it seems like young men, often lonely young men, uh, sometimes unemployed young men or underemployed young men, this is obviously not a population that's... Uh, a risk factor only in the cryptocurrency market. <laughs> so uh, what did you learn about what, like if, if anything, about what makes that population particularly susceptible to this? And why might it just be like a reflection, like, like how much do you think this goes beyond crypto? Oh, it definitely goes beyond crypto. I mean, so young men um, are more risk, uh, have a higher risk tolerance. Young men are more likely to gamble. Young men are likely to engage in all sorts of risky behaviors. That's one reason why men's life expectancy is younger, is that we happen to do certain things as young people that, um, you know, at least compared to our, um, our uh, uh, to, to women that are, that are more risky and therefore result sometimes in us dying. Um, but we also gamble more. Um, and I remember this. I remember being young and in my 20s in Los Angeles and and there's casinos just outside of LA, and you'd go and play cards. And ironically, or fittingly enough, um, my friend Dave, who can, was trying to convince me that <laughs> he was into online poker, um, where there's a lot of overlap between crypto and online poker. Um, the lawyer for Tether, for example, uh, used to be the compliance officer for a holding company of, uh, of uh, online poker site, Ultimate Bet that had a secret god mode where they were defrauding their uh, their their oh, customers. Wow. So yeah, that's they could Tether's see what law. cards you had. They, you could see what yeah. cards you had. He's right. their lawyer now. So there's literal direct ties between yeah. online poker. They got some of my money. Yeah. So <laughs> as to what... a young man. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I remember my friends being like, yeah, yeah, you can play cards for real money. I'm like, okay, where are these companies? Like, I don't know. You know, they're in the Bahamas. They're in, they were out in the Caribbean. Yeah. They were in the Caribbean because they had had to move there because law enforcement was, yeah. was breathing down their necks, and sure enough, they got shut down on what's known as Black Friday. Anyway, um, so the, why the story is so appealing, I think it's that young men are very uh, uh, risk tolerant, they like to gamble. Um, there is something that's happened in this particular generation, which I think is interesting to talk about. You know, This is the generation that maybe was was probably relatively young, but still sort of cogniz cognizant of the repercussions of the subprime crisis. 
a lot of these you know, young men, they saw their parents lose their homes. They saw there's a lot of mistrust of government um, amongst a very particular cohort. Um, and so I think when you combine the somewhat understandable mistrust of our financial system. I am not a defender of our, <laughs> of our traditional fans. I've been accused of working for the banks uh, because I criticize crypto, which is like... It was my first thought. When I <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I don't, I don't know where... Anyway, um, I think it's... It, 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 you combine a sort of skepticism, understandable skepticism of our financial system with basically a get-rich-quick scheme. You know, the idea that you're going to become wealthy overnight by just sort of mastering the extraordinarily arcane you know, uh, terminology and, and technology behind crypto. And, it, and you combine that with a feeling um, um, of, uh, it's called DYOR in crypto, do your own research. It's, it's basically, you're responsible for it's everything. Aaron Rodgers' approach to crypto. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. That's a, that's a very like, He's the, a crypto guy. Yeah. With the, okay, perfect. He, I did yeah. not know that. that yeah, he surprised me at all. He spoke at the yeah. crypto conference that I went to in Miami <laughs> that year. That's yeah, hilarious because yeah. you were making a vaccine joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, no, that's the with the American sort of male mythology of like, well, I'm going to do it on my own. Right. And I don't. I don't need the government, which frequently comes from people who like. Their parents are doing pretty good. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. But the only libertarian I knew in high school, his dad owned the car dealership. Right. I was really? like, this is pretty ironic, man. I, I mean, you literally have a... I had a friend, just as an aside, raise his hand once in my first year of law school in constitutional law, and somebody was espousing their libertarianism, and, and he raised his hand, and he goes, uh, I just feel like most of the libertarians I've met are um, young and really attractive and wealthy. I don't know if there's any correlation there. You know? Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, there really is this kind of like, yeah, it's, it's a mythology, right? It's like this, this notion that they call it self-sovereignty, right? It's this sort of fantasy that you're going to have these bits of computer code that are going to be magically worth all this money, and it'll free you from... Well, really, at the most extreme, not just from the state, but also from even having to interact with other people. Um, cryptocurrency wants to become this trustless form of money where all you have to do is trust the code. But code does not fall from the sky. People write code. So what you're doing is you're trusting the people that write the code. And you see that very clearly with Sam Bankman-Fried. What he's alleged to have done is to instruct one of his lieutenants to change a single number in millions of lines of code, create a secret backdoor where he could steal his customers' and money. And you met Sam Bankman-Fried. You interviewed him before everything blew up. Tell us about that experience. It was wild. I mean, it was an hour, an hour plus. I knew enough to ask him, you know, another level of question that he, I'm sure he'd gotten to some degree from the financial press, but depressingly very little of it um, because he had really perfected the myth of himself as this wonderkind, you know, genius, and and his resume, you know, supported that. He grew up at Stanford. His parents are professors of law there, very accomplished professors of law. Um, he went to MIT. He was at Jane Street, which is a, a hedge fund, very well regarded hedge fund. And he had then drifted off and gone into crypto, and 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 had come seemingly out of nowhere and become one of the hundred wealthiest people in the world, according to Bloomberg that year. So when I met him in July of last year, the crypto market had just started its crash. That was May with this company, Terra Luna. And he was being pitched as the JP Morgan of crypto. He was going to buy up all these failing companies. He was pitched 
that way, by the way, uh, by uh, The Mooch, by Anthony Scaramucci, who... Uh, he has a business with him, right? Has yeah. a business relationship with him, yeah. So he was being called J.P. Morgan. He was going to buy up all these He's companies. somewhere around here today. He is, yeah. Maybe, maybe he'll walk in and we can be like, say hi to him. please respond. I was asked to be on his yeah. podcast. I'm instead on your podcast. Oh, <laughs> no, I please, it's my I mean, pleasure. He must be made of titanium. <laughs> all right, bring him out, folks. <laughs> they should, oh, God. <laughs> they should actually study him because he seems to survive every type of nuclear political event. So. He's kind of the crypto of people. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> he's, and he, to talk about the uh, the libertarian thing, of like yeah, the handsome, yeah, he's, like, he's always tan too. Yeah, good, impressive. Good jawline, that fellow. Yeah, I got, I got no problems with him. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah me either. He's, he's fine if he's so. Serious. So anyway, sitting with Sam was just really sort of fascinating. Um, you know, I asked him very simple questions, like, "Give me one example of what crypto does. Give me one company that's doing anything." He talked about remittances. I had just come from El Salvador. I said, "Baloney, Sam." We went around and around and around, and he ended up saying uh, uh, this coin called Solana, um, which he owns so much of that it's jokingly referred to as one of Sam's coins. So that seemed awfully self-serving. It was things like that that were so deeply unsatisfying. And then as I go into the book, at the end of the conversation, when he, I recorded all this, this will be in a documentary at some point because it's all on camera, um, at the end of the conversation, when he thought the cameras weren't rolling, he started slagging off all of the biggest players in crypto, including Tether. And I think that just kind of says a lot. And you know, he, crypto talks an awful lot about community, right? They have this, they use these words that it's this community of people that you don't really know them actually, and they're not a physical community in any sense. Um, but this community of crypto amongst the people that really matter is about the most backbiting, vicious, it's a zero-sum game. So the only way for you to win is how it makes It's how he went down. Well, not not why he went down, but it's the precipitating factor is you went after CZ, like the yeah. head of Binance kind of aggressively attacked him and then the CZ kind of took him down. Maybe talk a little bit about that story. And then uh, while he's talking, if you have questions, we're, we're nearing the 15-minute marks. So we'd love to hear from the audience. Yeah. Uh, and in talking about Binance, I'd also love, because you know we talked about Tether, but Binance, which you know is still surviving, mm -hmm. has its own murky legal status, from what I understand. Like, they don't have a headquarters. Yeah, is that right? They have yeah. no headquarters. Right. Neat trick. Yeah. You know, can't, hard to sue a company that has no headquarters. I know. I need to, I need to work that with the Yeah, IRS. exactly, yeah. As a New York resident. I, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, well, I think that, so, so to put this in context in terms of how small the actual market is, in terms of the people that really matter, um, I think Sam's leaked congressional testimony is a really good place to start. So Sam was supposed to testify in front of the House uh, Financial Services Committee um, just a couple days before I ended up testifying before the Senate Banking Committee, but he was arrested and so he couldn't couldn't show up. Uh, but his, his testimony, his written testimony leaked, and in it he includes screenshots from a, uh, a secret uh, group chat under the encrypted app Signal and in that group chat are CZ of Binance. Binance is the biggest exchange in crypto by a mile, B bigger than FTX ever was, no matter how much FTX tried to pretend the otherwise. CZ of Binance, Tether, Sam, and this other couple of other players who are, are sort of important. The name of the chat group is Exchange Coordination. I can't remember the quote from Adam Smith, but it's something like, you know, when men of a certain profession get together, you know, it's not for merriment, it's for, 
it's collusion. I mean, right? I mean, in, in a regulated marketplace, if that group even, if they, the feds even found that group existed, that's grounds to charge them. Or Criminal conspiracy was Absolutely. taken. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, and it's, of course, it's in a chat group. Uh, you know, I mean, that's how, that's how these guys roll. Yeah. Right. Um, so anyway, I, I, so, so Binance is the biggest exchange and CZ uh, was an original investor in, in, in Sam's company, FTX. And then Sam, as I go into the book, publicly turned on CZ as things were falling apart and started mocking him online. CZ's a, a Chinese Canadian and he was like, can he even come to the United States? How is he gonna shape the regulatory environment if he can't come here? Um, while Sam was cozying up to Capitol Hill and lawmakers. And then, and then all of a sudden uh, Alameda's balance sheet leaked, Sam's other company, which was a shit show. And they were completely liquid. And they depended on this one coin that Sam had created that CZ happened to own a lot of. And CZ said, it's so, such a shame. We're gonna very slowly and, and methodically unwind our positions so as not to roil the markets. You know, this is not a bank run. And everyone went, holy shit, it's a bank run. Yeah, yeah. And they tried to sell it and the whole thing fell apart. Um, and then CZ at the very end, and what, a, what is a wonderful moment, he, he uh, you know, so they're fighting, they're fighting, and they're fighting, but CZ has this chip and he plays it and the whole thing falls apart. And then for like 24 hours, um, CZ had Sam on his knees and Sam was like, okay, they've signed a letter of, a non-binding letter of intent to buy our company. And of course the press went like, See, Binance is gonna buy, it's gonna buy FTX. Well, it's a non-binding letter of intent, it means nothing. And so 24 hours later, after he just extracted his pound of flesh, he was just like, nah, actually I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip on that. And so FTX fell apart. It's a, it's a very funny little marketplace and it's also a great example though of, of what happens in an unregulated marketplace. You know, all the things that we hate about a regulated marketplace, which is of course in, regulated imperfectly, are just, even more extreme in an unregulated one. It's like the state of nature. Yes. It's just like, yes. and it's like just these world beater guys who are like Highlanders. They're like, there can be only one. Right. And, and so anyway. Exactly right. right. Yeah. Well, audience, uh, so we have two microphones. If anybody wants to ask questions while you're here, uh, great. Uh, Ma'am over here. Okay. I'm, I'm short, so let me just go. Um, this is going to be an uneducated question, and I haven't read your book yet, but what makes my head hurt is those data mining facilities that are chewing into our electrical grid with or without regulation from ERCOT, which is also unregulated. And I'm, I'm scared about yeah. that. What do, I'm pretty sure they're paying their bill with Bitcoin. So where is that cash coming from and how liquid are they enough to pay their bills? Well, it's even worse than that. They're oh, getting subsi subsidized, yeah, right? Well, they're yeah. paid to turn sure. off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. They made a fortune uh, last week. Yeah. Yeah. They make money now, not from the selling of Bitcoin, which will shock you, is a very liquid market. There really right. aren't that many people that still want to buy it. And so then they're just, they're saying they're holding on to the Bitcoin and they'll sell it when the price magically comes back up. But meanwhile, they're taking money from us. Right. You know, I mean, I guess I don't live here anymore from my dad. Sorry. Sorry, dad. Put you on the spot. But from, I grew up here and ERCOT is, you know, it's a mess. Everyone's always known that. This is making it worse. It does not cause the grid to collapse, but it does raise the price of electricity for everyone in the right. state. It forms the base layer price. So, you know, they're they're raising the price for everybody and they're gouging us in the process by this sweetheart deal they cut with the with the regulators. Yeah, it's 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 infuriating. So everybody's head is hurting because of this, right? Yeah, and I think they get away with it because it's, you know, it's 
quote unquote complicated and hard to understand. It, it isn't really, it's just a grift. I think, you know, for us to really do this, we need to speak up, be loud, and, and, and demand answers. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know that there are very many easy solutions, because as you see in our wonderful state government here, I mean, corruption is pretty, <laughs> there's a lot of it. Um, and unfortunately, accountability seems to be uh, And you mentioned in the book that in 2021, I think it, uh, the mining activity equaled the energy usage of the country of Argentina. That's right. Which is crazy. Uh, sir, over here. Hey there. Uh, one of the concepts I remember when um, you know I was first hearing about crypto and NFTs and all that was Web 3.0, you know, versus Web 2.0 versus Web 1.0 back in Prodigy or whatever. Um, in your opinion, do you feel like the hype slogan, you know, the coined word of Web 3.0, um, is something that we've actually are emerging into it yet, or do we still in a Web 2.0 world and all this is, you know, grifts and and you know and you know you've been a little uncharitable about the concepts, you know, and that's just a ledger. Right. Um, like, where's the promise of Web 3.0 versus uh, the Web 2.0 world if we're emerged already into it, or is it still a hype dream? a coined phrase that's just a PR stunt? Yeah, it's a PR stunt. Um, it's a marketing uh, term. Web3 really doesn't have much meaning beyond, you know, the pitch is it's going to take all these, again, using the things that we hate about our current system. You hate the concentration that, you know, Amazon has all the power, Google has all the power, all these, you know, first iteration uh, uh, or second iteration uh, internet companies have consolidated and, and cornered the marketplace. And so the Web3 companies, which are basically crypto companies in disguise, are saying, we can fix that and decentralize it and make it peer-to-peer. -peer. All you have to do is buy this token. If you just buy this token, you can use our websites. That's creating little economies of private money on all of these little websites that are, that, you know, all you got to do now is buy, and, you know, Facebook, Libra, uh, Facebook, now called Meta, tried to create their own private money called Libra, and the U.S. Mm -hmm. government said, what? <laughs> and shut that down. Exactly. Terrible idea. It, it, Web3, you don't hear about much anymore because it was always just marketing. Um, What's ironic and so frustrating about it is it's the opposite of what it says it is or what it wants to be. It says it's going to democratize and decentralize. It's the opposite. Yeah. You're talking about it's private counterfactual. Money. What's that? It's almost counterfactual to what the, the premise of what it, it is promising. Exactly. Yeah. And, it's, and, and, and in the defense of the cypherpunks, which is really where a lot of the sort of the crypto talk came from, which I think was well-intentioned, like this fight against the powers of, of sort of... Uh, uh, you know, capitalism, but also sort of a um, consolidation and, and mature markets. Like, I understand the aspiration there from the cypherpunks, but that's been completely co-opted by companies like A16Z, venture capital firms that are yeah, that are just supporters. yeah, they're just cornering the market and, and lying to people and dumping on retail. So yeah, thank you, sir. Thank you. So to stay kind of on that thread, say you're Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, these VC bros with all the money. What are they buying by setting up a new financial system? What are they getting out of that functionally? Well, uh, Peter Thiel was on stage uh, at the Miami Bitcoin conference last year that I was at, which is the biggest Bitcoin conference in, in the world, and he was throwing dollar bills to the audience to signify their unimportance. 
Uh, people were clamoring for them. Uh, and he was saying, I thought you guys were true believers. What are you talking about? Well, one of the things that's sort of fascinating about that is we've come to now find out is that Thiel had already sold his Bitcoin. He was in the process of selling it at that very moment. So do they really believe? What is it, what is it useful for? If you get in early in a Ponzi scheme and you can get out, you can make a lot of money. Uh, Elon Musk went on Saturday Night Live as a Dogecoin advisor. Do you remember that's, there was a skit there? Oh God, it's the height of the mania. And, and, uh, and he was shilling Dogecoin. And um, in Walter Isaacson's book, there's a kind of an offhanded reference to the fact that Elon was secretly funding Dogecoin. This is a joke coin, a coin that was created as a joke. And he owns an enormous amount of the supply of it. And he's out there selling a currency that closely resembles an unregistered, unlicensed security that he not only owns a lot of, but he's funding development of, and he's not mentioning any of that? It is really extraordinary he's able to do that. You know, he has television. a very advanced sense of humor. <laughs> so this really, could all clearly, just be, clearly. Just be jokes. Yeah, yeah, it's just above all of us, us poor mortals. Ma'am, over here. Hi. Um, I had a question about how did the media play a part of making him legitimate? Because I think having him on Bloomberg and probably, I don't know, probably the Wall Street Journal and oh, different yeah. kind of financial entities that made him legit. And as far as like the Ponzi scheme aspect, we never saw like Bernie Madoff have like a Super Bowl commercial. And I think there was something about it that made it seem like this is a real thing. I can't put money into this. That's right. That, great question. The, the, the mainstream financial media really messed this up. And it's pretty easy to understand how, though. I'm not impugning the motives of, there's some tremendous financial journalists, wonderful people, but what happened relatively early on, meaning a few years ago, um, is that crypto became legitimized enough as a quote-unquote digital asset, which again, asset of what? What is the asset? Um, it became legitimized enough to where the uh, major uh, news organizations, such as Bloomberg, uh, created their own crypto desks to cover the nascent industry. Well, who do you think advertised on the crypto desks? The crypto companies. So what was the incentive for the reporters to really go after the pervasive fraud in the industry? Some of them did, to their credit, but many of them just regurgitated press releases or wrote fawning profiles of Sam. Or when I was interviewing Sam in July, it was in a midtown hotel room. I arrived early because I'm neurotic, and he was already in the room with the guy, Jeff John Roberts from Fortune, who was about to write uh, this profile of Sam, the next Warren Buffett, question mark, which was soon to Isn't appear. Fortune also the magazine that did the, the Elizabeth Holmes profile? Yep. Uh, yeah. Yep. They wrote a review of my book the day after it came out. Apparently it was an ill-informed flop. The next week it hit the New York Times bestseller list, so... <laughs> Fortune well, magazine. Everybody. Well, I mean, I don't want to brag. I was in the Fortune 40 under 40 once. Nice. So clearly they got one thing right. What have you done? <laughs> what have you done? I no longer, I used to like you. What have you, you clearly. I, I, I don't know how. I, so was like Beyonce. I don't think she cared or mentions it ever, but I do apparently. Dude, you so. should definitely keep that. Yeah, yeah, don't yeah, worry. Don't worry. It's only like 38 or so. So, you know, I mean, every once in a while they hit. <laughs> well, but to your second question, which was also really good about how it got so big. 
So everybody, it's kind of like incentive structures in subprime. There's no real incentive for most people to look under the hood, and most people have other stuff to do. So the only people that are really kind of paying attention to it benefit from it continuing to exist. Um, but it is worth, why did Madoff never get a Super Bowl commercial? I would argue that it's because Madoff was too smart. You have to control the redemption process. If it gets, the Ponzi gets too big, you suffer from it getting too big because you can't keep the scheme going. And only these guys were cocky enough to think that they could keep it going forever. The Super Bowl actually marked an inflection point. Um, every Ponzi scheme eventually dies because you run out of suckers. And if you get that big that quickly, and crypto did in the span of just a couple of years, went from almost nothing to this huge thing, it falls apart just as quickly, and that's what happened. Ma'am. Hi, Mr. McKenzie. Um, my name is Celeste Flores. I am a UT Austin grad student, policy, global policy. And as a grad student in global policy, there are many times where I know my opinions are controversial and that not most of my uh, classmates are going to go with them. So my question was, how did you approach discussing concerns about cryptocurrency in an environment where many are strong supporters or even part of the companies? And what prompted you to take that step to give your opinion out in the world? Got it. Um, thank you. That's an excellent question. And I think one that's worth... I felt, uh, I think you guys will probably relate to this. This seems to be somewhat of the, you know, the reason that your podcast exists. I felt so um, uh, disenfranchised under the Trump presidency. I felt like I couldn't call out this guy. He was clearly, a, I could call him out, but it wasn't doing any good uh, to call out a con man, to call out all the misinformation and lying. Um, I couldn't do it, I could do it, but no one was gonna listen to me because I'm a part of woke Hollywood, right? I mean, even though I grew up in Texas and played high school football here, but I'm clearly woke Hollywood. But I found my little sliver there because of my econ degree and because I know about lying because I do it for a living. And I went with that and I went with it, I was terrified to do it, but I summoned the courage um, because I felt like I had to, because I felt like um, I think we all have to do our own little part in whatever way that means, whatever it means to each of us. It does take some bravery, it does take, but, but I will say, I was so much more afraid then than I am now. I now see that the emperor is completely naked, that there's so little there. And so much of the hate that you get in crypto land comes from these anonymous accounts that only tweet about crypto, ever, always. It's a paper tiger. Um, so much, so we, we, we imagine our, 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 our um, uh, antagonists, we imagine the people that are against us and, and build them up in our brains, but act, in actuality, we have more, much more power than, than we think we do. So I encourage you to, to speak up and speak your mind. Thank you for that question. Well, as we close out, I just want to recommend get that book. We have copies of it downstairs. Uh, ben will be signing copies right after this. It is absolutely riveting. It is the best book on crypto by far I've read. And it's not just a great crypto book. It's a great history of the financial crisis and ties together like really fun anecdotes, great stories, technical explanations. And it's very clear when you don't need to know the technical explanations, but it gives it to you anyway. It's just an amazing read. So, you know, go downstairs, get yourself a copy. Great job. Thanks, Ryan. Um, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, uh, it's called Easy Money. Um, yeah, and if you can applaud. And, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, and in closing the podcast part of the show, uh, the way we close every week is we say we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Uh, what you've done is a very apt uh, example of that. So, I mean, we kind of joked at the beginning of the show about like an actor getting into this, but 
you know, you looked at it and said, well, okay, I, people know who could I am. Be worse, it could of, be, he could be a politician. Yeah, it could be worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, people know who I am because of this, So, and I have this strong feeling about it, so I'm going to say something, I'm going to do this, and that's using your platform. So I commend you on it. Thanks for doing this with Thanks, us. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate that. Uh, Thank you. Thanks, guys.